Well, since we kind of cheated our next speaker uh, the last time he spoke earlier this morning, uh, we're going to let him come on a little early and keep us moving. Uh, again, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jeffrey uh, Meffert. He is a family physician turned dermatologist who says he has relied on PAs and other health professionals to help him get his job done. He is currently in private practice and part-time faculty at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Again, join me in welcoming Dr. Meffert. Oh, God, not me again. A um, couple of comments uh, regarding the last speaker and then a, a follow-up on a question I got from my first talk. Um, one thing I will say about Merkel cell carcinoma, and he showed the picture of the guy with the big thing behind the ear. I have never seen a Merkel cell that has not been IND'd at least once. Uh, sometimes in the emergency department, sometimes in dermatologists' offices. It, uh, seemed, because it looks so much like an inflamed cyst that usually people have tried to, to IND it at least once. So if ever you go into IND something that really, really looks like an abscess uh, and it's solid, while it's numbed up, take a piece, send it to the lab. Uh, regarding the, the tinea nigra, for those of you that uh, do dermoscopy, um, we actually published the derm dermatoscopic findings of tinea nigra palmaris is in cutis about 15 years ago or so. So uh, in case you see a lot of it. And uh, one question re regarding uh, mine had the, the lady with the, with the red, the cellulitis looking uh, breast that turned out to be breast carcinoma. Um, because the inflammation is actually in the lymphatics and as the tumor cells are infiltrating the lymphatics, it actually looks like a cellulitis. It hurts, it's warm, it's, it's, it's somewhat tender. Um, but you can, uh, you, you can diagnose that with just a, a punch biopsy, a four millimeter punch will show that the, the, the dermal lymphatics, even in the high dermis, are, are basically packed with uh, breast cancer cells. And uh, while, your, uh, while your pathologist may not give you an immediate report, because they'll want to probably do some uh, special stains to ascertain the, the cell line, it is a, a very typical and very classic presentation. Now, um, you know, if it's someone that you are making the diagnosis, then you'll probably need to hook them up with a surgical oncologist uh, some of the patients I have, uh, you know, such as the picture showed of someone that had, had radiation therapy, uh, have oncologists, and you need to make sure they know about this because obviously that, can, that will change the uh, staging. So, acne. You know, um, the SDPA said adult acne. I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. And then, um, basically, for the next few weeks, I looked at all my adult acne patients to decide what I wanted to say about this. Um, there are several issues. One is I, I will be discussing off-label use of medications because if we only stuck to FDA-indicated uh, uses of medications for acne, um, I could probably let half my patients go because I wouldn't be able to treat them. I certainly don't have any conflict of interest. And just something to keep in mind, though the people at your trade show don't want to hear it, if it's being sampled, it costs too much. Um, and uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, and sampling cells, there's good data behind that too. Um, I, about a third of my practice is uh, cash pay, uh, patients that are uninsured. Uh, they, they, they work enough and make enough money that they don't qualify for Medicaid, but you know, they don't have the money for insurance. And so um, you know, when it comes time to treat their their problems, and I have uh, choices between things that are on the $4 Walmart list or things that cost uh, $250 per unit, uh, we'll usually see what we can do off the uh, $4 Walmart list. Uh, 
Unfortunately, tretinoin is not uh, on the low-cost generic list of anybody, but generic tretinoin runs about $50 to $65 a tube for a 20-gram tube, uh, which certainly anything that is uh, branded starts at $150 and moves up to $250. Uh, many insurance plans will not cover uh, things such as Xeon or Epiduo because their uh, cost is so blisteringly high. But those things are less use in adult acne anyways. Those, those actually have more use in adolescent acne because part of, what they're, part of their focus on, on the retinoids are for the comedolytic action. So this is, this is teenage acne. It generally follows a, um, a, a sequence, starting out with the comedones, and then kind of move into papular acne, and then pustular acne, and then cystic acne for some. So some of these become these, some of these become these, some of these become these. And of course, our, our focus on treatment is always kind of push it back to the lowest level, because these don't scar, these don't scar, these can start to scar, uh, depending upon whether you're, you're picking on them or not. Adult acne is a little bit different. It tends to skip that whole comedonal stage, go straight to papules. Sometimes, especially in some uh, women, will go straight to cysts. Uh, this will sometimes be related to the, actually will often or usually be related to the menstrual cycle. And, uh, but there's some other things you need to think about. You have your, your other variations, perioral dermatitis and rosacea, which are, uh, perioral dermatitis is an interesting condition, sort of has one foot in acne and one foot in rosacea. Um, and then there are other things that adults you're going to see more than you're going to see in uh, kids, and that's uh, acne-form drug, uh, acne drug reactions and all. So this is your, your typical teenage acne patient, at least at the early stage. And uh, just, just so you know, I, I, I used to be very precise, and I found I don't have to be precise. So if it's one comido or many comidones or comidos. Uh, either is acceptable, so if, uh, if the... Uh, if the Dermatologists can be kind of anal sometimes, and if uh, your supervising dermatologist makes a big deal about comedos versus comedones, tell them, uh-uh, no, it's okay. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's one million and many milia, uh, but the reason I even bring this up is talking about comedos that are not related to acne, uh, because this, this will come up, especially in your adult patient, and if you just treat it like a regular old acne, it's not going to get better, because it's not. Uh, Nevis comedonicus uh, usually shows up in childhood, and that's something that the patient says, yeah, I've always had that. Uh, the actinic comedones, or 5 show disease, with a couple of different uh, flavors of that, um, you know, have these, uh, this is actually a Nevis comedonicus here, and this is your 5 show with some really heroic uh, comedones actually moving on to, to actual cysts uh, related to long-term sun exposure. Now, this patient with these you know, big nodules there, that's, that's not going to respond well to uh, a topical retinoid. But many of your other patients earlier on that still just have you know, the, these blackheads around the, uh, you know, around the upper, upper cheeks and uh, lateral canthus, uh, very often a retinoid will work for them. Now, if you're going to do that, you always start out um, every other day or even every third day if you're, if you're working around the eyelid. Uh, there are a couple of products out that are uh, basically the retinoid in the emollient base. They're marketed for wrinkles. Those would be things like Renova and Rafisa. Um, insurance never pays for those, but quite honestly, it's very hard to get insurance to, to pay for a retinoid for anybody over age 25 anyways, which is why you often tend to go to the generic line um, and, and give them a tube of generic and just have them work up to it. So, you know, this whole business of giant pores, uh, that, that is not infrequently a chief complaint that I have. Uh, someone comes in and they describe themselves as having monstrously big pores, and um, you know you have first you have to determine is this something new? 
Uh, have you always had these, or is it something that's slowly developing or acutely developing? Uh, I do ask about medication. Uh, I ask about contraception, particularly changes in their contraception. Have they, uh, especially in young women, have they switched to something that is a stronger progesterone agent? Because that can sometimes, not just with the uh, comido in pore size, but uh, with acne uh, in general. And then there's makeup. Um, and again, this is more for the, the young women and teenagers that, man, I wish I'd bought into Bare Minerals. Uh, I'd be rich. Uh, freaking rich comes to mind. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the fact is, is that uh, Bare Minerals, for all its popularity, is actually good business for all of us because um, it, is, it is fairly comedogenic. Uh, you know, it is w widely marketed, and I have a lot of uh, young women whose acne starts or gets much worse when they start to use uh, Bare Minerals makeup. So I always emphasize, I write down, non-comedogenic, non-acnegenic, won't clog pores. I say, anything you use on your face needs to say one of those things. And if it doesn't, I can't guarantee it's not going to make things worse. But here's the other problem, is a comedogenic makeup remover. Uh, your, your standard Noxema and Pons, uh, well, your standard Noxema I call acne in a jar, and your Pons cold cream pads I call acne on a pad. Um, you know, basically, this will induce uh, comedones and acne in anybody. And um, so I always ask not just what is your makeup, but how are you taking your makeup off? Uh, now, there are Pons and Noxema products that are non-comedogenic. Uh, they don't work as well as the comedogenic ones. And so the cycle that, um, see it especially in, in uh, teenagers, but in uh, some young, young adult women, uh, they'll, they'll start to get the acne. They'll start to uh, put the makeup on heavier because they're trying to cover the acne, but now it's on so, so thick that they can't wash it off with soap and water. So they start to use cold creams to take it off. That makes their acne worse. They put the makeup on heavier uh, to cover up that acne and on and on and on. So. Uh, a lot of times it's tough to convince people to back off, but uh, you, you know, that, that often is, is part of the problem. Now, these giant pores themselves, I mean, you're supposed to have pores. If you don't have pores, you have a scar. Um, and in fact, if you had no pores at all, you would look odd. Um, because we know that there are supposed to be some little tiny dimples in the nose and all. Now, uh, there's a lot of things that are marketed out there, the over-the-counter pore reducers, they're, they're, they're mostly useless. Uh, some of the more expensive ones have a little bit of retinol and ret or retinol in them. It might work a little bit, but generally I tell patients to, to save your money for that. Uh, topical retinoids can certainly help, the stronger the better, uh, in terms of getting the pore size down, but that can also be irritating. So you take a product like tazeratine, uh, that actually is pretty good at working at a sebaceous nose. And the more sebaceous the nose, the bigger the pores appear to be. And you can shrink that with a retinoid. Uh, probably the better strategy is to use something milder over long term rather than just hammering it. Uh, chemical peels can help. Photodynamic therapy can also help because the uh, sensitizing agent is absorbed by the sebaceous material. Uh, but but you've got to be rich to be doing this on a regular basis because those, those treatments are expensive. Now, the other, the other thing you can do is uh, I, I tell patients, I can fix your pores in five seconds. I take a ball-peen hammer. I'm going to break that, that damn magnifying mirror that you have. The only per There's only two people that are so close to your face using well-lit magnifying devices that can see your giant pores. One is you and one is me, and I don't care. Um, they're normal. They're supposed to be there. And uh, by the way, anybody, uh, anybody out there that gets the reference with uh, Roger Daltrey breaking through the mirror, uh, you're as old as I am. Congratulations. So, 
So uh, this is part of the problem, is to convince people that, no, your pores aren't that big. People are not looking at you from across the room with disgust because you have giant pores. Um, same thing with the giant pimples. I have this giant pimple. Where? Uh, can't you see it? It's huge. Well, I'm sorry, I don't have my derm light or my magnifying mirror out. I, I can't see it. So adult acne will usually start with pustules or will start with nodules. It'll skip that whole comedonal thing, even if the patient is upset about the, the size of their pores. And sometimes we'll present initially with, uh, with cystic acne. And certainly someone that's coming in with this, I'm not going to start isotretinone right off the bat with all the issues that are involved with isotretinone, but I will be giving them isotretinoin information right off the bat because this is an acne that's going to lead to scars. And uh, you know, for whatever, you know, whatever you, you will hear about uh, scar renovation in the rest of this conference, whether it's with lasers or with fillers or with dermabrasion or whatever, the best treatment for scar is to keep it from happening in the first place. So uh, this, we need to get this shut down. We need to get it shut down pretty, pretty fast. Now in terms of medications, there, there are things that uh, you, you have to look at especially in guys. Now, a lot of my adult acne talk is kind of geared towards women because they are the majority of adults that come in with acne. There are guys that come in, and sometimes it's they've had it their whole life. Every, all the men in their family have horribly scarred backs. They are going to be your tough patients. But what about the one that comes in acutely? It says, yeah, I had teenage acne, and I'm doing better now. And uh, you notice they, they can't put their legs together because their thighs are so big and they can't put their arms at their sides because their arms are so big. Um, there are still a lot of uh, use of, uh, of anabolic steroids out there, legal, illegal, and semi-legal. The, kind of the semi-legal was there, there was, this used to be over the counter, uh, it says professional use only, but you could buy it without a prescription. Uh, it was a fairly potent anabolic steroid. It's been off the market 10 years, but if you don't think that before it went off the market, there aren't crates of this in back rooms of gyms uh, here and there, you're, you're fooling yourself. Still out there, if I see someone that looks like they've been bulking up or they're a football player or you know, something like that, uh, I, will, I will ask in a non-confrontational way. Now you also, there are familial receptor issues, and this applies to both men and women is that sometimes it isn't that there is an excess amount of the androgen on board, it's just that your hair follicles are particularly sensitive to it. And, that's, and those are cases where you might bring out hormone blocking agents. The thing is, you can't really do that with the guys, or it does the same thing as that. And uh, by the way, I, I, sometimes we get to the point, I can offer castration, um, it'll cure their acne, they won't lose their hair, um, great, great for the skin, uh, maybe bad for self-esteem, um, no one's ever taken me up on that. Now, um, women, I do have some women bodybuilders too, and uh, some of them will use the, the anabolic steroids, and so you, you have to ask about that. But here we really are talking about more in, uh, endogenous problems. The uh, thing that's always in the back of your mind when someone comes in with bad, new bad acne that especially goes straight to the, to the nodules and the cysts is this idea of a virilizing tumor. And those do occur, uh, you, you know, generally ovarian tumors. But they're going to, when you do the lab on that, and that's one of the only times I do lab, you're not going to find subtle elevations in uh, free testosterone. These are going to be monstrously high. Um, and so that, I will do that sometimes in the patient that just has this acute onset of really bad acne without a good explanation for it. Uh, generally, more of my patients kind of uh, less so with the actual polycystic ovary, but more the hair and syndrome. 
you know, because my population, I have a lot of uh, diabetics end up with the metabolic syndrome. A lot of them are tending towards a little bit of hirsutism, a lot of them lose their hair early, and a lot of them will have problems with acne. Um, and so, you know, we need to approach that hormone issue, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Now, if you read about what kind of lab should you do in an adult that, that has acne, there's all kinds of things that are mentioned. They're in your handout. I hardly ever do this um, because it's hardly ever abnormal. As I say, the main time I would do this is someone who has, has no problems, has had no problems, and now has a problem and a bad one. And uh, so that's, that's someone I would consider doing, doing the workup, uh, focusing first on the testosterone, looking for that, that uh, virilizing tumor, but of course looking at the rest of the patient. Are they growing hair where they shouldn't? Are they losing hair where they, they shouldn't? And, uh, but uh, hardly ever do that. Uh, I don't know if you can even get anabolic steroids on the drug screen that you can order in a regular clinic. I mean, you can find out about narcotics and meth and things like that, but um, at least always, always address the issue. Uh, men, maybe the thyroid. Uh, the thing about uh, thyroid is that if you're hyperthyroid, it can give you acne. If you're hypothyroid, it can give you acne. Uh, basically, if you don't want acne, your thyroid needs to be where it's supposed to be. And if someone has already have a diagnosis of a uh, uh, hypothyroidism, and I notice that they're on Synthroid and they're having acne problems, I ask them, has that been checked lately? And uh, if it hasn't been, sometimes I'll go ahead and do that. And uh, on occasion, I found that, yes, they're on thyroid supplementation, but they're getting too much or they're not getting enough. Um, I re we do uh, full vital signs in all my patients when they come in. So I also have a blood pressure and a pulse, which uh, helps me you know, as I'm approaching patients uh, with this. But I hardly ever do lab on, on men either. Now, you know, you, so you take the, the, the history when you have the, the person with um, adult acne, especially a new onset, and what is one of the things that is a confounding factor in adults that will not be usually a factor in teenagers is their other medical history, particularly in regards to cancer. Not cancer causing their, their acne, but cancer and they have acne because some of your treatments may not be advisable. So women who have had a hormone-sensitive breast cancer, uh, men who have had a hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, uh, these, are, these are situations where uh, hormonal manipulation might be good for the skin, but uh, bad, bad for their health overall. And uh, so you may have some limits there. And of course, if you are talking about other hormonal manipulation, particularly if you're talking about birth control pills, the whole, if they have a history of uh, deep venous thrombosis, particularly with pulmonary embolus or severe migraines, uh, you might want to hold off on that. I prescribe oral contraceptives in my clinic. Not everybody is comfortable with that and will tend to send the, the patient back to their pediatrician, family doctor, OB-GYN. Uh, I think the, anybody, anybody in this room can use the, if they don't already know how to use oral contraceptives. And quite honestly, most, most PAs are better at prescribing oral contraceptives and know the ins and outs of, of that than most dermatologists. Because the dermatologists, uh, it's very uncommon for them to have gone through any kind of primary care route before ending up in dermatology. Whereas a lot of you guys fought and clawed your way to this uh, conference room here. So uh, you all are probably more familiar with some of the issues here than, than, than your boss. Um, but, uh, you know, medications can also cause acne, and uh, there's, a, there's a number that, that can, and I'll, we'll talk about that in a second. 
When you're talking about putting someone on birth control pills, there are some standards. There are a few that actually have an FDA indication for acne, and they're fine. But actually, pretty much all birth control pills, as long as they are not progesterone dominant, will help acne. And so uh, while these forms of birth control are great if I'm going to be putting someone on isotretinoin, they aren't so great if I'm trying to, uh, to control someone's uh, acne or if I'm trying to control their hormone balance, I'm going to put them on it. So this is not something I'm going to put someone on. And the same for the progesterone-only mini pills that are out there. I hardly ever, in fact, I haven't seen anybody on overall or low overall in a long time. But these were fairly androgenic contraceptives that uh, were more likely to cause acne than, uh, than help it. And the way this works is, is that it inhibits the ovulation that kicks in that step which uh, generates the, uh, the androgens. Now, th this is an interesting pill here. Uh, Yasmin, Yaz, Ocella, all the same, all more or less the same thing. Um, and basically, it's because the progesterone is the strospirinone, which, um, if you actually look at the chemical structure, is really close to spironolactone. And so uh, you would expect it to help, but it also has some of the same issues. There are some people that suggest that you do need to, to watch uh, potassium in this. It's not routinely recommended, and I've never seen a problem with uh, potassium and one of these products here. Uh, but um, it, it can work like uh, spironolactone, and that spironolactone is uh, pretty much your choice for hormone blocking if you're not going to put them on a birth control pill or, um, or there's reasons you can't do that. Uh, there's plenty of internet ads. Anytime you, you, if you look up Yaz, Yasmin, or Osella, uh, you, you know, there'll be a pop-up on the side for a lawyer uh, looking for business. And so um, just be aware that there's that issue. And sometimes patients are, are, are up with that too and will say, yeah, but I hear, I hear this is awful and it kills people. Well, and you have to deal with that. So what about spironolactone? Well, I mean, it's an interesting medicine. It's only been around for about 30 years, uh, maybe longer. It was originally designed as a diuretic, but it wasn't a very good diuretic. It wasn't very good at lowering your blood pressure. Uh, probably its main use is because of its potassium sparing effect is that they combined it with other diuretics uh, to keep you know, people from getting hypokalemic while they were on a thiazide or, or Lasix or one of those. Uh, the dose that works is pretty broad. I've had one patient that did well on 25 a day and got hypokalemic on 50, but she just must have been exceptionally sensitive because that, that, she's the only one I've ever seen do better on 25. Uh, generally, I start people on 50 a day and then move to 100 if that doesn't work. Uh, occasionally, I go to 150, but if they're not doing better at 100, they're probably not going to do better at 150. Um, the, there are a variety of side effects. The, the, the hyperkalemia aspect, because of the potassium sparing, I used to do uh, potassium levels routinely, um, hardly ever got anything, and, and now in my adults, and again, this is an adult acne talk, at some point I will check it, but that's because adults are more likely to be on other medicines. Uh, teenagers, I just, uh, just don't see that. Now, the one thing you have to warn the patient is, if, if a friend or a family member notices they're on a diuretic, they'll tell them, oh, you're on a diuretic. You need to eat lots of bananas and use the salt substitute, and that's how you get hyperkalemia. So I always tell them, this one, this one does not cause you to lose potassium. You can have a banana now and then, but don't, don't overdo it. And uh, the nice thing about this is if in, in, along with their acne, they are having problems with hirsutism, and that can be a familial hirsutism as well. Uh, you know, everybody in the family has the mustache. You can help that a little bit with this. And uh, more importantly is the androgenetic hair loss, that diffuse hair loss that can hit 
is somewhere in the 20s, often by the 40s, and usually by the 50s, uh, it can really uh, help people maintain hair and sometimes even grow back some. And, and that's by its uh, mechanism on the, uh, on the hair follicle. Now sometimes my patients come in and they want me to, they want cyproterone uh, acetate because they read about that on the, uh, on the internet. You know, it's not available in the United States, uh, but there's tons of literature behind it because it's been available in Europe for 20 years. Um, I'd love to try it sometime, but I'm not going to send, send someone to France to, uh, to pick it up. Um, minoxidil, not a lot of data on it. What's interesting is the, the issue with finasteride. Right now, uh, if you get your finasteride prescription, uh, your, your Proscar, your Propecia prescription, there's like this big black box. Don't even let women touch this medicine. Uh, and here we're saying, ah, we can use it to help your acne a little bit. Um, the issue is, is that uh, these medications, and spironolactone does too, cross the placenta. And uh, it's one of those things, if you're going to get pregnant while you're on one of these medicines, or apparently while handling pills, um, you have to feel really lucky. Because if you're carrying a little girl, actually, she'll turn out okay. But if you're carrying a little boy, uh, he's going to come out looking like a little girl. And, uh, and that's obviously a problem. So you know, the whole issue of finasteride uh, in, in use for acne, it's not approved yet. In fact, a lot of people still think it's a really, really bad idea. What I'm still concerned about is long-term data relating to other hormonally sensitive um, cancers, such as either, if not ovarian, certainly breast. And I just haven't seen good data. And that's what they're working on now is long-term safety data. So uh, stay tuned on that. We may be using finasteride uh, products for, for acne at some point, uh, but not right now. It's not, not currently approved, and nor do I really recommend it until the safety data comes in. Uh, but I already mentioned this, and you know, as far as uh, other, other adrenal problems, um, they're, they're pretty uncommon. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, adults have that, that teenagers usually don't is money. And, uh, you know, especially the motivated patient that really wants, they want their acne fixed today, and they've heard about this and read about that, and it's in all the journals, is the mechanical, the non-medicated treatments for acne. And so what, what's out there? Um, with apology, I mean, a lot of you are doing this stuff in your offices, and we may have a difference of opinion of how, um, how effective they are, but I'm kind of an evidence-based guy. Uh, microdermabrasion, sure, it helps, uh, helps a bit, and it can help in the short term. does have to be repeated indefinitely. And my patients always have this idea that they're going to go get a microdermabrasion or three, and it's going to fix their acne for the next year. And we all know it doesn't work that way. It can help. It can help for a while, as long as you're getting it every month. Uh, ditto for chemical peels. Uh, it, it certainly can, can help using glycolic peels. Um, Usually, if I'm going up to 70% on the glycolic acid, I'm treating melasma. I'm not treating acne. But uh, even the 30% the to 50% can help acne. Again, you have to do it on a regular basis, uh, you know, every four to eight weeks to, to maintain any kind of effect. And these are not going to do anything for nodules and cysts. And if a patient has nodules and cysts, these are superficial treatments for superficial acne. If they have nodules and cysts, you need to do something more aggressive. And, or more generalized. Now, the, um, the blue light, you know, with or without the, the photodynamic therapy, that actually is moderately effective, though the blue light alone doesn't work that well, and the blue light does not work as well when combined with uh, a sensitizing you know, amino acid as uh, lasers and the intense pulse light sources do. And that's probably because of penetration issues. 
Uh, that standard U-shaped blue light does not, well, it's great for AKs. I love it for AKs with um, the uh, ALA sticks, but for acne, it just doesn't get deep enough. Uh, a lot of the, the lasers and uh, IPL devices can. Um, you do need several treatments to get an effect, so it is moderately effective. It is, is a bit pricey. Um, there are some OTC light devices that are, that are out there, and I used to say they were all nonsense. Uh, and I actually did some research once, and uh, someone wanted it for photo rejuvenation because she read that they were so wonderful. And tracking down several light devices, it's very hard to find out how much energy they put out. Uh, but when I finally found some that somewhere deep buried in some of their packaging they had how much light they put out, uh, I can tell you that for most of the ones that you can buy at Walmart or Walgreens or down at you know, any, any place like that or mail order on the internet, uh, the, the light energy they put out is about the same as what you're going to decorate your uh, house with uh, this, this Christmas. Um, and if you think Christmas tree lights help your acne, that's fine, but that, that's about what they're good for. Um, however, there are some of the really expensive ones that I, I, I haven't been able to hold the data in my hand but I've heard on, from other sources that can help. But the problem is these are the many hundred dollar devices and to get any kind of effect, you need to use it for about an hour a day. Um, and I just don't know that many people have that kind of patience even though, yeah, it kind of works. Um, and they basically are using light emitting diodes to kind of get some of the energy. I imagine it's a lot like the blue light is that uh, you're getting some, some effect, especially superficially, but you're not gonna get deep penetration. Uh, the vacuum extractor, or the sebum suckers, as I call it, first time I saw one of those, I thought they were kidding. And then they told me the price, which if you had the full bells and whistles, was over $100,000. And I go, oh, you're really kidding. Uh, they're not, and actually it kind of works. But again, this is one that you have to keep doing. Uh, so if you have a sebum sucker in your clinic, good for you. Um, but uh, I shan't be buying one. Now, sometimes it's our fault. It is a hormone issue, but it's the hormones that we're giving. Uh, if someone comes in with a monomorphic acne, usually it's on the chest and back, but occasionally it can be uh, on the face. Uh, usually I'll look for pred uh, evidence of a recent prednisone course. Now usually this will happen on, on some of these patients, particularly the eczema patients, that are getting repeat uh, uh, steroid courses one after the other, and this will sometimes happen on the second or third. But I have had patients in the middle of their very first steroid course, if you're giving a good robust two or three week run, get this. Now, if you do nothing, eventually it goes away. It will go away a little bit faster if you treat it with an antibiotic, uh, you know, something in the tetracycline family. Uh, a lot of times, because we're, uh, we're talking about large surface area, I'll tend to do that. Otherwise, if the patient is tired of taking medicines because we've been giving them medicines and the medicines are giving them problems, uh, sometimes uh, you, you know, topical clindamycin or erythromycin can help this too. But mostly it's time in trying to stay off the steroids for a while. I've only seen this once with someone that was getting monthly IM Kenalog, but it can happen even there. Far more likely to happen with uh, oral steroids. Now the other thing that adults will tend to, tend to get, because they're on more medicines, are acneiform drug eruptions. And this is a thing that people often forget. There are a bunch of medicines that can cause acne. Now, lithium is number one, and, and that really puts me in a pickle. When I have someone and they have bad acne, and it'll, it'll sometimes be a, a nodulocystic acne, something that's going to leave scars, and I notice that they're on a lithium uh, compound of some type. Well, I don't want to tell someone that's on lithium, oh, it's your medicine that's causing it. I'd get off of that if I were you. Um, 
I, I will mention that some of their medications may be complicating it, and I certainly will pass that on to their uh, psychiatrist or family doctor, whoever's taking care of them. Uh, but um, as long as they're on lithium, they will have a very resistant acne, and uh, lithium can even be uh, isotretinone resistant. And uh, so it can be a very, very tough one. But uh, there are other things, the tricyclic antidepressants, the statins, which everybody's on, uh, even cimetidine, which is over the counter now, any of the antifungals, immune suppressants uh, beyond prednisone can cause it, any of the anti-epilepsy medicines, even beta blockers can cause acne. So kind of going back, you know, originally we we're saying, well, do I need to do a big uh, lab workup looking for ovarian tumors and all? The first thing you do is ask the patient, okay, medications, new medicines, changed medicines, um, and it won't be immediate. It won't be that they'll start the medicine and next week they'll start the acne. Uh, in fact, usually uh, when we're talking about things that I finally pinned down as being related to statins or beta blockers, uh, usually it's a month or two down the line, and it's a slow onset. So I'm not sure the mechanism for that, uh, but, but it, it does happen. Uh, but there is another drug that you, you can help, and that's nicotine. And uh, this will happen, um, most of the reports have to do with smoking cigarettes. I assume that dipping in cigars would be the same. I have seen people get this with nicotine patches. Now, they had it before, and that's why I told them, you know, your, ac your acne is made, being made worse by your smoking, uh, but uh, gives them further incentive. But nicotine patches will keep this going. So eventually, they want to get off of nicotine of, of all sources. Um, I, I have, I, I shouldn't, I know I'm not supposed to smoke cigars. Occasionally, I do. I do notice if I smoke a few more, occasionally I'll get a little pimple. So, uh, it, uh, so even that limited exposure to tobacco can do this. So uh, just another thing to, uh, to consider. Now there is another drug-related acne eruption that is, that is really hot right now, and that's the epidermal growth factors. This is so common that you may not get referred a patient for it because the oncologists who are giving the patients these medicines know this is gonna happen because it happens about half the time. Now, uh, if you do end up with one of these patients, it, it's often very, very responsive to, uh, to tetracycline. And uh, even to the point that some people have suggested maybe we should give tetracycline prophylactically. Other people have said, no, we shouldn't do that because patients that have this acneiform drug eruption uh, to the epidermal growth factor uh, inhibitors, um, that's actually a positive prognostic sign. That is a good sign that the medicine's gonna do what it's supposed to do. And no acne may mean no effect also. So a lot of people are waiting to see what happens. But if you do see one of these patients, most, there's a whole family of them. Most of them end with Ib and uh, can cause that. And uh, we're actually a little bit early because we started a little bit early. Uh, before I move on, any questions about anything I've talked about so far or anything from the first, first talk? Move on, keep going, okay. So they, uh, they took this symbol down to, a, um, down to a, like a subway stop and they showed it randomly to people without the top and the bottom and said, what does this mean? And it was something like 80%, uh, if I said, if I put this on a label on a medicine, what would that mean? And 80% said, that means you can't get pregnant. This medicine will keep you from getting pregnant. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's obviously an issue. Um, acne and acne, this is the isotretinoin eye pledge sign for those of you that haven't seen it. I see it all the time. I use a lot of isotretinoin. Um, one thing I will say about isotretinoin in adults is that it um, never works as fast. You often end up having to use higher doses. You have to treat them for much longer. 
It doesn't work quite as well. The acne comes back faster after you stop it, and uh, they're more likely to have problems. And so I use isotretinoin in, in my adults, but uh, it's, it's tough. And, and actually, uh, yesterday, yeah, I had a full clinic yesterday. I lose track. Uh, in my clinic uh, yesterday, before I left, I got back a lab report on a uh, gentleman who, uh, whose uh, triglycerides were now up to 964. I mean, that can put him in the hospital with pancreatitis. And I, that's after I put him on Lopid and cut his dose back down. And fortunately, he was at the point where after only four months, he had cleared. So we stopped the medicine anyways. But uh, we'll see how that goes. Adults are more likely to have these problems. Adults are more likely to get pregnant, too, uh, in a planned fashion. Um, I, I, I don't give uh, isotretinoin to teenagers. Phrases. I, do, I will not give isotretinoin to fertile teenagers who are not on oral contraceptives, uh, no matter what they say their level of sexual activity is, because I don't trust teenagers. I have some. I don't trust them. Now, uh, if you get pregnant uh, and you have acne, and patients sometimes want to know this, especially if you've been wrestling with it, uh, it might get better, it might get worse, it might, get, might stay the same. Some women, it's the only, in fact, I had one, young, one woman who said, the only time she ever was clear is when she was pregnant, and she was on her fifth pregnancy. So I'd say, you know, uh, we're going to run out of opportunities on this one at some point. Um, but the, the issue is everything you put on the skin is absorbed by the skin, uh, probably as much as uh, 10% uh, can be absorbed. And so that's, that really ties our hands in some of our best treatments uh, for acne when people are pregnant. And the, the other thing is that nothing's been properly studied in pregnancy, and nothing ever will be properly studied in pregnancy, just because I don't know any, any companies that are you know, really trying to capture the pregnant patient acne market. And for that reason, they're not going to be doing the very expensive and problem-prone studies of uh, subjecting people in a double-blinded fashion to various acne medicines and see what happens. No one wants to do that, and I don't, I don't blame them for it. So we're, we're never going to, you know, if it's, if it's class B is usually as best as you're going to get. Most things are class C. Um, and the, the part of the problem that you always have to keep in mind is that 10% of women pregnancy will end in a birth, will have a birth defect of some type anyways. And so you never want to be in the position of having to say that, um, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Now, the tretinoin, I have don't do it and don't worry. And I, I tell patients, patients who are trying to get pregnant, I will let them use tretinoin, um, Retin-A, Epiduo, Adapalene, Retin-A Micro, Tazerac, probably not Tazerac, because um, that's category X. But I, I will let them use some medications and tell them, now, if, you know, if they're actively trying, I won't give it to them. But if they're sort of thinking about it, maybe at some point, I will go ahead and prescribe it. But I'll tell them, at the, if you think you're pregnant, you stop it right away. But don't worry. The reason I say that is that there have been studies where women used tretinoin through the entire pregnancy, and their birth defect rate was not any higher than the background. Now, that doesn't mean their birth defect rate was zero. It wasn't. But it, and so you never want to be in that position of having the plaintiff's attorney pass the PDR to you across the stand and go, uh, would you care to read for the jury this statement right here? You don't want to be in that position. So I tell people to stop it. But uh, it, is, it is actually probably safe to use tretinoin topically through a pregnancy as long as you're not bathing in it. But I won't let my patients do it. Because adapalene, same thing. Tazeratine, absolutely not. Because it actually has a category X. You're supposed to give someone a pregnancy test before you put them on tazeratine, Tazerac. 
Um, it doesn't make sense because, say, you're supposed to do it before you put them on it, but it doesn't talk about the monthly monitoring, which you have to do with the iPledge program. Uh, I won't say that I don't do that, but I'm not going to tell you that I do that every time either. Now, of course, isotretinoin, don't even think about it. Now, the actual birth defect rate with isotretinoin in pregnancy uh, is, is actually not 100%. But you never tell a teenager 100, it's not 100% because they will assume that they're going to be in the not 100%. So I always tell people, just count on a, your birth defects, and they're horrible, so don't, don't do it. Uh, and acetretin is, a, is an issue, soriotane, uh, the reason for it is that you're supposed to not get pregnant for three years after that because it's uh, stored in the fat, especially if you uh, drink, which a lot of adults do. And so uh, basically, I won't give acetretin for any reasons, whether it's psoriasis, acne, or anything else, uh, to any woman who's capable of becoming pregnant at any point. And so uh, you know, they need, need to be uh, postmenopausal or uh, uh, surgically sterile for me to do that. Now, the other drugs, of course, uh, tetracycline, the whole family, you can't use that uh, because of the whole issue of bones and teeth in the baby. Erythromycin is probably safe, but uh, there are some issues with jaundice that are associated with that. Uh, same for the, um, uh, for the sulfa drugs. Uh, benzoyl peroxide, even though that's widely recommended in pregnancy, there's actually some rat studies that suggest that maybe that's not such a great idea. Uh, clindamycin is safe. We already discussed the issues with spironolactone. And uh, then the, uh, the sal acid preparations are often recommended in pregnancy too, but I kind of view that as, well, would you tell a pregnant person to take aspirin? And the answer to that is no. So why would you have them uh, smear, uh, you know, use a salicylic acid body wash? And so I, I tend to have people stay away from that. Not that I have good data that shows it's a big problem, but just because I don't know for sure that it's not. Um, so so what, do, what do I say? I say, well, you know, don't worry about it unless you're, you're on isotretinone, which you know, I keep changing this every time, and it keeps changing back, and I'm not sure why. Not only just putting it to Accutane, but misspelling it at the same time. Gremlin in the system. Uh, but these are things I will let people do. Uh, azelic acid is probably okay, even though it's not studied either. For oral medications, I will use uh, clindamycin at, at times, and usually the OB people are okay with that. Uh, Rithromycin, uh, though, they usually don't want you to do that right uh, before delivery. Uh, and I advise caution with the herbals, and the reason is, is that the Herbals have not been, not been studied at all.